Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. We have as our guest today, Martin Bean, the Global Head of Energy at SNV, and we are going to talk about results-based financing. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Sanjoy. Very nice to be here, and thanks for the invite. You know, Martin, I first learned about results-based financing, RBF, I think that's what you call it, in one of my early visits to Tanzania, maybe five years back. Uh, and, we, you know, I was fascinated then. And in the last five years, the fascination has already grown. So I'm really looking forward to learning about this and, you know, making so many people aware of it. At one level, the concept of results-based financing is easily understood. Donors pay for actual results on the ground. The issue, of course, is that in the off-grid energy industry, that there are a whole lot of details the selection of companies and the verification of actual results. Please tell us how you do this at SNB. Yeah, thanks Sanjoy for a good question. Yeah, first of all, results-based financing is really intended as a temporary financial mechanism to de-risk commercial investment. And we've been applying it indeed since 2014 uh, in the energy access space with the private sector. How it works, it's really, it starts with a competitive application process, a goal for proposals uh, where a company is offering quality uh, products. In this case, in the case of Tanzania, the example that you know, it was really about quality solar products, so lighting global, ferrosol, verified products. And basically all companies coming in with their own business propositions, um, evaluating those, uh, doing the due diligence on it, uh, further market intelligence research around it. and. Eventually, of course, you, you come to a selection of, of companies that are able to provide quality products and, and services to the market. And on the verification part, indeed, there's a whole process involved about running a results-based financing scheme. Verification is critical because actually in results-based financing, as the term already says, payments are only done to third parties after successful verification of results achieved. Uh, in this case, sales of solar home systems, for example, uh, energy access connections, and, and that is verified. That can be done remotely uh, through data management systems, can also be done remotely by calls, uh, phone calls, for example, uh, but also uh, often on-site, a certain percentage of, of customers need to be verified on-site as, as a donor requirement in many cases. So that's a lot of work. So, you know, you have to build a market intelligence in the beginning, due diligence of, of companies, the quality of products, that's all upfront, and then a lot of third-party verification after the project has been implemented, so, uh, so as to speak. The interesting thing is that you have to do this in a transparent and time-bound manner, so that private entrepreneurial companies who are not exactly known for their patients have trust in the process. So how do you ensure that? Well, as, as in any fund management uh, program, there's a lot of standard procedures that you will need to need to apply and that companies are quite familiar with. But indeed, with results-based financing, there's some particular issues that come into play. Uh, and, and one of those, as you mentioned, is, is verification and that payments are only done after successful verification. Now, it's very important for the private sector that they're fully clear uh, on what is expected, uh, at what point in time, um, and to be fully transparent on, on the operational guidelines, basically, that will be applied during the process, that companies know exactly what to expect and when. 
and then also have a close follow-up of course with with uh, the private sector with the companies participating in such a scheme so communication as always is, is critical and to adhere to the indicated timelines uh, to avoid frustrations uh, from different ends um, what it also meant for us as an international development organization is to adjust our language and our, our way of thinking. Uh, you really need to get yourself into the mindset of companies, how they operate, how they communicate, how they act, and to adapt also our way of working to that and basically up to the same speed as well. Um, so definitely that is, that is a change to regular development cooperation work, you could say um and it's uh, it's adapting to that and also your way of communication communicating adapting it to it right so i'm taking away you know clear operational guidelines i'm taking away the that there has to be a standard language between the companies and development organizations like yourself and uh the third thing i'm taking away is being transparent um but but one thing that you know, puzzles me as you talk is that obviously projects sometimes get delayed, right? So you are, you know, private companies entering an unknown market. Uh, you expect certain number of systems to be sold over a period of time. Things change, right? And how do you sort of work with the companies when things change? Yeah, well, it's a very important point. And it's indeed also true as a fund manager, you cannot control everything. So for certain parts in the process, you actually depend on others. First of all, uh, a donor might require an independent verification agency, for example, that might not be contracted by us, but directly uh, by, by the funding donor. And then you actually depend on yeah, the speed, uh, the bureaucracy also sometimes internally, and the procedures that simply need to be applied by different parties. And then you might have delays indeed. And that is very frustrating, first of all, for the companies involved, also for us as a fund manager, now, how to go about that is, is, again, from the very beginning, explain how the whole process is being structured so that also the companies know uh, on which part they need to come to us and on which parts they actually need to approach other parties. And that if there is uh, hiccups along the way, that the, the communication channels are always open, basically, and that we're always open to receive feedback and to adjust our interventions. And that's also in a positive way. Eh? Uh, just as an example, when we started the solar RBF in Tanzania, it was really about over-the-counter sales of products where customers would pay upfront the full amount of uh, the cost of those products. But very quickly, we saw the pay-as-you-go market starting to boom. And so pay-as-you-go that with mobile money in place, basically in East Africa and growing, it was a huge opportunity for solar companies to start offering products that people were not uh, required to pay upfront the full cost, but basically in uh, installments with an upfront payment. And uh, after that, with monthly installments, and then after two or three years time, the product would be theirs. What it meant for us as a fund manager of an RBF facility, we needed to accommodate that development in the market. It was not designed for pay-go RBF scheme, but we need to accommodate that with uh, a few changes in the scheme that we needed them to agree upon also with the donor. So what it what it needs is flexibility actually from a fund manager to react to those changes in the market and then also flexibility uh, from, for example, the donor or in different parties in the scheme to quickly adopt to those changes and um, and approve uh, those those changes. 
And that's, of course, where sometimes you have hiccups because you agree on a certain procedure, manuals, uh, templates, and all of that. And then actually with a change like that coming, that's for the better of the market. We actually, we better than adopt, uh, adapt quickly to that and adapt the scheme. That's what we did in the case of Tanzania and, and quite successfully so. Um, but still, uh, that's that's always a challenge, how to adapt and, and do that fast enough, because those changes in the market are generally also quite, are sometimes go quite fast. Right. One thing about how incentives in results-based financing are designed is that private sector can be made to target markets that they often keep away from, right? So you did that quite effectively. Uh, would you like tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, as I said at the beginning, results-based financing is really intended to incentivize companies to engage in challenging markets, so to do something that they would otherwise not necessarily do or not yet. So RBF is then really a mechanism that can accelerate market development in those challenging areas and then de-risk and leverage commercial investments uh, for companies in order for them to really engage in those more challenging markets. That comes with tailoring incentive levels, considering, for example, socioeconomic conditions and market maturity in those different uh, areas. And what we did in the case of Tanzania, for example, and that we later on replicated in other countries as well, is we developed a vulnerability access index, a VI, as we call it, which is basically assessing based on publicly available data, economic conditions and uh, market maturity, and in this case of the solar market, which areas are underdeveloped would be more challenging for companies to go to and based on, on those uh, data basically tailor the incentive levels so that if there's more challenging markets for companies to go to within a country incentive levels are higher in those areas where is in, in the, the easier parts of a country where there's also already some level of presence of the companies and where population density is rather high, capacity to pay might be higher, that in those areas, incentive levels are lower. So that's then how you can steer basically with how you go about incentive valuation on where, yeah, basically you find incentive levels in a way that companies are triggered to engage uh, actually even in the most challenging markets of a country. Right. And, uh, you know, what I found particularly interesting about vulnerability access index, which you had developed, is that you used publicly available data. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the type of data that you used? I mean, I already know you mentioned population density, but there were other data elements that you used as well, right? Sure. Um... Now, indeed, the population density is one of them, uh, level of energy access, but also access to other basic services like water. There's a, a couple of parameters and criteria linked to gender equity, child and maternal health. So those really give indications then on, they say, socioeconomic characteristics of a certain part of a country. And I also mentioned already capacity to pay, for example, is another important one. And on and the other end of the, the scope is more the say the the maturity of the market in itself. So for example, the years of solar, the, the years of, of presence that solar companies have in a certain part of the country, uh, for how long, uh, the level of sales uh, in, in those areas. And basically, when you're managing a scheme like this for a couple of years, you build that kind of 
market intel along the way. So you quite quickly get a sense of where sales are increasing quite rapidly and you get a sense of the areas where that is actually challenging or where sales levels remain quite low. And that also allows you then to change those, say, incentive levels and the VI levels, as we call them, over time. And in that way, uh, steer things in the right direction. In the end, what we achieved in the Tanzania Solar RBF, um, what we contributed to, is more than a million people having access to energy. Um, quite significant numbers that were achieved over time. And not only that, it's basically in the end, what you're looking at is job creation. Yeah? Close to a thousand new jobs, full-time jobs were created uh, with those companies and a lot of non-full-time jobs, significant leverage of commercial finance. In the case of the RBF in Tanzania, we managed a one to seven leverage ratio because you can imagine for the amount of incentives that were dispersed, a multiple seven times larger amounts were needed in terms of pre-finance and commercial finance actually achieve those results. So what the RBF is doing is only incentivizing companies to do something that otherwise would be challenging, to de-risk investments in areas, but still requiring investments in those areas as well. And in Tanzania, what was then achieved is that more than 10 firms actually engaged in those regions for the first time offering more than 30 new solar products and achieving a sustained presence also of those companies in those markets by gradually decreasing the incentive rates. Right. You know, you have already talked about pre-finance and you've talked about, you know, the leverage that the RBF facility generates because incentives are not enough to attract private companies who have to, you know, import the equipment, they have to assemble the products, pay wages, distributors, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how the RBF program crowded in private investment on the pre-finance side? Yeah, so we worked in the case of Tanzania, just as one example, with uh, 12 companies in the end, Um, and that's a broad mix of different types of companies. So there's international companies there that actually had strong capacity themselves to to leverage commercial equity and debt financing, and that were in a quite good position to invest and then the RBF was de-risking their engagement in a new area. On the other hand, you had also local companies that are actually struggling quite a bit to attract that commercial capital. And what the RBF did then is actually act as a guarantee for investors to, to come in and to engage with those companies. So we have examples of companies like Ensol and GCS, uh, local companies, probably names that you might not have heard about before that are Tanzanian companies operating only at national level in Tanzania that for the first time actually got access to commercial loans because of having the backing of the RBF. They could show the contract to the debt provider saying, look, we have this RBF contract. If we achieve those sales, we have the backing of this international organization providing incentives. And with that, we developed a quite natural collaboration with commercial investors like SunFunder, for example, that started to provide first loans to those companies because of that de-risking element that the RBF brought. Now, without having such pre-financing modalities in place, uh, RBF will indeed never do the trick. It's very nice results-based financing, and it's becoming very popular and being replicated now all over the place. But uh, pre-finance and access to commercial capital is actually critical to achieve 
those results. Uh, it's only part of the solution. Again, that de-risking element, that catalytic effect that RBF can have to accelerate investment. But uh, definitely that collaboration with commercial finance providers is, uh, is critical. And that's what we then embed also in the, yeah, say the more next generation RBF designs. Right, you know, what you are saying is that obviously we all know that the pay-as-you-go industry in, in East Africa has a large number of these foreign-owned, foreign-managed companies who have access to international capital markets and, you know, and fairly deep-pocketed investors. But uh, you were able to, be using the facility and using the sort of guarantee or the, or the assurance that companies will have money at the end of the, of the implementation cycle, you were able to get in you know, working capital providers like, like some funders to fund some of these local companies who didn't have, wouldn't have otherwise have access to capital. And I think that's really critical, actually. That's correct. And it was kind of a natural collaboration, eh, how that started, uh, because we kind of realized that we're engaging in the same space uh, with uh, similar companies in our portfolios or in our pipelines. Uh, so even uh, during due diligence already, we reached out to each other and you know, you kind of do an assessment on what is needed to, to get to a certain level of scale. And basically, that's where then also the opportunity arose to work more closely together. And there, there's parts that we could do as a development organization, providing RBF financing and also technical assistance to those companies to increase their investment readiness, for example. And there's other parts that we cannot do. We're not a commercial capital provider, and it's critical to get to the scale. So that kind of you know, blending public and private finance, um, but also blending of capacity, so to say, and experience and track record. I mean, there's certain elements that organizations like s can bring in, but there's, I mean, we're only part of a bigger system where there's a role to play for a lot of different organizations. And we much more need that kind of synergy between different levels of organizations, between public and private, between investors, but also civil society organizations and government. In the end, you're trying to basically achieve systems change. And we're only part and actually a small part in that broader system. Uh, so collaboration and uh, partnerships are critical to, uh, to make this work and get to further scale. Right. It's not only partnership between different types of organizations, but also partnerships between different types of capital, because, you know, what some funder is providing is working capital and what you are providing as SNV in the results-based financing program is a set of incentives for project completion in some way. And which brings me to the next question, actually, because, you know, one of the things that donors worry about in providing incentives to the private sector is that the market will collapse after they withdraw. Obviously, that hasn't happened. You have talked about, you know, million solar home systems in, in um, Tanzania, and I, for one, know how quickly the market has expanded. What has been your experience and how have you self-guarded, uh, you know, the, this market collapse possible outcome? Yeah, one critical thing is obviously not to over-subsidize. You know, there's plenty of examples where development finance came in over-subsidizing companies in a way that basically there was no business case actually after the project was over to still continue the business. So what RBF is doing is, well, I mentioned that leverage factor, one to seven, and that is what not was achieved in all RBF facilities, to be honest. But even if you have an average of one to three, that means that for every dollar you invest with, say, ODA, donor capital, 
uh, you actually aim to achieve three times leverage of commercial finance in that. And that is critical because that, that will, in the end, be important to get to a sustainable business model. In terms of the subsidy levels itself, yeah, the grants and results-based financing in this case, what you can do very easily in RBF is you, you set an incentive level and that can be done in different ways and we can also get to that. But to, it's critical to decrease those incentive levels over time gradually to prepare a market for the times that those subsidies are not in place anymore. Because we have seen indeed examples of relatively high subsidies that come to an end just from one day to another. And then indeed a market can collapse if you don't oversubsidize and you decrease those subsidies over time gradually, the chances are higher, obviously, that those companies will survive because their business model is not built on grants. It's, it's built on a business case with commercial capital in it. And indeed, in the case of Tanzania, you never know how things are play out. And there's companies that did better and there's companies that struggled more. And of course, we've seen all of that. But it's indeed very good to see that the more than 10 companies that start to engage for the first time in those regions are actually still doing business there now after the RBF has come to an end. So it played a role in accelerating their investment in those regions and to scale that up in a way that it allowed them to build a business so that once there were no subsidies anymore, basically the business was already there and they, com- they could continue that. Right. You know, I've had similar experience in Bangladesh, where which also had a results-based financing program administered by IDCOL, again, for the same sector, for solar home systems. And that's exactly what they did as well. You know, those are very important lessons. You have been running RBF programs since 2014. You've talked a lot about Tanzania. You also mentioned that you started with over-the-counter solar products and then moved to pay-as-you-go. Could you tell us a little bit about the other countries that you operated in, product categories, and most importantly, the donors that you have worked with? Yep. Yeah, indeed, I, I talk a lot about Tanzania. It's close to my heart. I, I lived there for five years. It's actually where I first started to be involved in, in RBF. But obviously, uh, at, the, at the same time already, when we started in Tanzania with SNV, we started similar schemes in other countries. Uh, Tanzania was one of the first ones, but We definitely had experiences in in other countries, including Kenya, uh, Uganda, Mozambique, but also in Asia, Cambodia, uh, Laos, Vietnam, in different uh, subsectors. So I mentioned Pico Solar, our home systems, but we also engaged in mini grids, improved cook stoves, clean cooking more broadly, and biogas. So indeed, with RBF applications in a number of different markets in terms of subsectors, but also different countries and regions. Uh, working with uh, NDEF as an important partnership program. It's multi-donor, it's funded by different donors, uh, but with the RBF facility under NDEF being financed by UK Aid, uh, DFID at the time, now FCDO. But in other countries, we also work with uh, AFDs, with the French, uh, with the World Bank. Uh, currently, our flagship programs in RBF, for example, with FCDO, we have the, the Brilio Energy Africa program in Mozambique. That includes a 19 million market development fund, uh, most of which is actually RBF, but there's there's other mechanisms as part of that fund as well. And there is COSAP, uh, the World Bank funded uh, Kenya Off-Grid Solar Access Project uh, in Kenya, where we have um, a 17 million 
RBF facility. Most of that oriented to solar home systems, but part of it also to, to clean cooking. And in Brillio, for example, in Mozambique, that, that's, that includes all technologies, including also mini grids and, and other technology areas. Um, so what we have seen is indeed the scale up of those initiatives. We're talking larger facilities currently and with applications throughout different technology areas and different donors coming in. Also IKEA Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, there's, there's, there's others that are actually very keen uh, to scale up interventions in this space. And you've obviously heard, I think, of the of some of the more global and regional RPF facilities that have been launched uh, since a couple of years ago. And so there's quite, quite some, uh, some dynamic in the RBF space. In, in energy access specifically, and, and we think it's great. And at the same time, we think, um, yeah, we should base ourselves as much as possible on the lessons learned and best practices that we have uh, seen throughout all the, the past interventions in RBF, because not all of it has been a success. Eh? And let's also learn then from the failures or from where we have, we've seen it was actually challenging to get an RBF to work. Could you tell us a little bit about the lessons from the failures, what to avoid? for organizations thinking of an RBF facility? Yeah, there's there's a lot to say about that. There's currently already uh, quite a number of publications on it. So, but if, if I summarize it, um, yeah, first of all, uh, sufficient private sector capacity should be in place, meaning financially able to initiate and leverage on an RBF scheme and conceptually able to see RBF as a tool for innovation and scaling. But also the financial sector needs to be there with willingness to engage and to, to play a role in basically um, recognizing the added value of RBF and then pulling in, crowding in commercial capital for, for those business initiatives. So typically in a country, you should have kind of a private sector capacity in a sufficient number of companies that you can realistically work with, with pre-financing generally available or mechanisms in place to raise that capital. And then, yeah, the foundational market presence, as we call it. So the enabling environment conditions that need to be there in terms of awareness levels, demand awareness levels uh, at customer level, but at companies as well, standards, taxation. You can think about tax exemption for solar, for example. All of those elements in the end work in favor to make a mechanism like this uh, work. So what we typically say is that RBF is a tool appropriate for market segments where certain preconditions are given, some of those I mentioned. And without those preconditions, definitely you also need more classical approaches still with pre-financing, technical assistance also, uh, particularly to, to local companies to ensure also that they will be able to engage in facilities like this. And in the end, yeah, RBF alone will never do the trick. It's what we call a tool in a toolbox. And um, it can definitely play a very strong added value in accelerating market development and de-risking commercial investments. Uh, but often more than that is needed. And that's why in our, uh, say our more later RBF designs uh, or inclusion of those facilities in broader programming, uh, definitely we pair that with, with other interventions as well based on the particular context in the country that is and in a certain market. And, and those contexts are always different. Right. I mean, the key takeaway is that markets have to exist in the sense that there has to be sufficient demand and there has to be suppliers who can take advantage of the facility 
and there has to be financiers who are willing to finance those companies. But I really like the point, and it's not so often understood of the need for technical assistance to the companies, and in particular to local companies and companies who would otherwise not be served by these you know, international facilities. Which actually brings me to the last question. You know, I know you have a lot of experience in energy and you talked about clean cooking as well, but a lot of climate change professionals not necessarily only in energy, believe that the solution to climate change in this decade and every day is running out is to deploy existing technologies at scale. And I think one of the things that RBF does is that it, it enables existing companies to promote technologies and products that, to markets that exist. You know, what would be your broader message to donors in the climate change industry? So, for example, to deploy solar pumps, for example, in the agricultural sector. Yeah, I think that we need both, uh, Sanjoy. I mean, we need innovations and pilots to test new ideas and also to test new uh, business models and technologies. And so we, we need that. And at the same time, we need instruments like RBF, for example, to catalyze investment and to accelerate market development and achieve further scale. But we need both. Even RBF as a successful mechanism would not exist without piloting. A lot, Quite a bit of piloting was done to come to kind of successful models and approaches to make RBF work also in the sector. And again, quite some publications have been done on that where you can see the differences in how RBF did work or did not work so well in particular market segments. So also there, piloting was actually needed and RBF in itself and EnergyX is, is still an innovation until this day. If we're designing RBF schemes now, for example, we're looking at a scheme for, for mini grids in Ethiopia, for example. Yeah, you approach it again in, a, in quite a different way because mini grids and particularly then if you really want to ensure the anchor loads needed, so it needs to be closely linked to anchor loads from agriculture, irrigation schemes, etc. And mini grids in itself with the regulations and policies around it that are quite, quite critical to have in place for, for the market to further develop. You can imagine that an RBF facility around mini grids in a particular country context is actually completely different from setting up a clean cooking initiative in Cambodia, for example. It, it really needs, it requires that detailed understanding of, of, of a certain market and of the barriers that exist in a certain market to get it to scale. Sometimes those barriers might be on the supply side and then RBF financing might be critical. Sometimes there might actually be some critical barriers on the demand side, on affordability, capacity to pay, awareness, or on the policy side. And believe me, then you might need something else in RBF. And in an integrated program, you might need a combination of those things. So um, again, RBF is not a silver bullet. It's part of a broader package that you will often need. We have seen examples where RBF kind of works as a standalone but only because a lot of the other uh, conditions were actually in place through other interventions as well. So um, yeah, we need all those different innovations and pilots, uh, I think, uh, Sanjo, in the, in, in the end to make it work. Exactly. The point that you make, made about pilots is, is so very important. And again, you know, needs to be just said as clearly as you said it. I learned about RBF facilities in, you said, Tanzania is close to your heart, but I learned about it sitting, actually, I don't know whether you remember, uh, in a restaurant just next to the Indian Ocean. And 
At that point of time, I learned it only for myself. And today it has been wonderful hosting you so that the whole world, at least my audience, can get uh, learn from you. Thank you very much, Martin. Thanks a lot, Sanjoy. Uh, it was a great opportunity and um, always happy to uh, contribute to, to further learning and exchange on this topic. Thank you. <laughs>